and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Ula Puntikos, BSC, uh, the DP of Season 2 of Russian Doll, which is available on Netflix and is uh, a lot of fun. Season 1 was great, Season 2 also great. Um, she's nominated for an Emmy for, um, I guess they have to pick an episode, so it's the first episode, but, uh, you know, it, it. I thought it was like a spy thriller or something, but it's kind of like a... But when I didn't know anything about the show, it's kind of like a time travel uh, you know, timey-wimey kind of thingy. First ep- uh, first season's handled differently than the second season in regards to the sort of mechanic of time travel. Anyway, uh, j- just in case you hadn't seen it. But if you have, you know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, this conversation, it's like I say it every week, one of my favorites. Had a great time. Um, you know, a lot of laughs. Uh, Ula was very... Um, generous with her uh, uh, knowledge and time and expertise. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. And um, like I said, we both had a lot of fun. I will say, uh, (laughs) if you're just listening, sometimes the Zoom would cut out the laughter. So it sounds like I'm laughing by myself. But if you're watching on YouTube, you'll know it was shared laughter. (laughs) I wanted to notice when I was editing, I was like, wow, this sounds like all my jokes are dying. But they were not. We were both having equal amounts of fun. Anyway, um, yeah, you're, you're going to love this one. Uh, Ula's fantastic, and uh, she uh, Emmy's well-deserved. The show looks great. Uh, so I'll let you get to it. Here's my conversation with Ula Pontigos, BSC. You know what's funny is normally at the beginning of the podcast, I ask, you know, like how you got started and stuff. But uh, I happen to have a copy of Preserving the Vision from the BSC. <laughs> okay. And, uh, here on here on page 303, it's got everything I need. I had no idea that they're going to zoom in into a picture of my face. Because it, it did, <laughs> you know, as a, as a wide shot, it sort of makes sense. Uh, no, no vanity intended, but it just looks very odd, that photo. <laughs> they did use like a handful of what appear, you know, like some of these are from, uh, you know, award shows or whatever. And then this definitely looks like a BTS photo that they were like, I just crop her out. It'll be fine. <laughs> but that's the thing. And I had I had like a, a photo of my face. Anyway, um, I'm part of the BSC uh, um, our Board of Governors, so I should really know better. <laughs> oh, man. Second edition. This is a nice, but you, I assume they gave you one of these? Uh, no. What? <laughs> I, it's okay. I probably will. will perf- I, I, I supposed to buy it. Oh, yeah. They made me buy it, too, obviously. But it apparently got stuck at Pinewood forever. And then uh, the nice woman who sent it to me sent me, like, f- she packaged it in, with, like, five bsc tote bags and a and a polo shirt so now i got a bunch of bsc swag but it's nice it's gilded yeah no no they put a lot of work into it yeah um but in any case uh it says that you started off uh with a degree in environmental studies yeah well i haven't done the degree so just for the record um oh you studied i have been studying i've done two years and then uh, I really wanted to do photography, so I took a year out, and I took another year out, and <laughs> I took another year out and moved the country. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that it's actually, I, I, I can't ever imagine going back. Um, I loved the degree, actually. It was, it was rather fabulous. Um, we had mathematics and chemistry and uh, physics, which strangely, I wasn't great at, but I wasn't 
awful. I was just bad enough. All right. Um, but then they, we had economics and I was uh, really struggling with that. I really didn't like it. I, and I was never a, a phrase that I've stolen is I'm, I'm plenty good at math. I'm bad at numbers. So uh, when economics came around in my degree, because it was just like a maths course. Oh, I think I failed it. I failed it. I got an F once and I got a D the second time. And I went, you know what? I'm going to find a different math course. <laughs> Was it like maths and what? It, uh, it was just like a general part of my film degree at, at Arizona State was doing other stuff, you know, just as a part of a liberal oh. arts degree. So uh, I was like, oh, ma-, my dad told me like, oh, macroeconomics is easy. And I got the driest British guy who, like his PowerPoints were just white background with Times New Roman font. I mean, they were brutal. <laughs> it was no interest in this thing. Yeah, especially the uh, the beginnings. Uh, it's lots of formulas, and uh, I just remember I, I I passed it. I remember I I've I got like a B or C. I don't remember sort of equivalent, but it was it was such a struggle. I actually had to ask my friend who had the degree in economics to help me out because I was like, oh, I'm so bored. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, pulling back on that, then like talk to me about uh, getting started in photography because the book says uh, that you. Uh, <laughs> that you um, got started, like, I guess, with your dad shooting photos a lot or like de- developing at least, which is a way more fun almost than taking the photos. I think it's like in my family, we always wanted to be artists. And my dad had a degree in uh, um, uh, nautical engineering. So he was uh, he had a degree in ship uh, engines. And, oh, cool. uh, and I think his desire was to. Uh, be more um, creative so he was sort of doing paintings and uh, and carving and and photography and it was such a nice way you know we were were in very small flat at the time there was like a two rooms so it was a living room bedroom and then um, and then my my bedroom and a tiny little bathroom where we got an enlarger and um, and you know, whoever took a photograph, we tried to sort of print it. So there was fun. There was a sort of fun, fun one of bo- way of bonding. And then I had a, um, he got me a Zenith camera um, with a lens. I don't remember. And uh, and I think I was really bad at it until I went for some death metal concert um, in Holland when I was seventeen, and they were actually not so bad anymore. So I thought, oh, maybe I can actually do something with it. Yeah, but I think it it just goes to show sort of how much practice um, sort of trains your eye and sort of the way of looking. Yeah, well, uh, so you're in New York now. No, I'm in London. Oh, oh, right. So, uh, sorry, I got the Russian doll thing stuck in my head. Oh, yeah. uh, but uh, even London, to to the point I was gonna make, was like a very photo photogenic city. You know, like a lot of DPs who live in New York. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, I just take my camera everywhere. And they have this beautiful street photography, which is a lot more difficult in a place like L.A. Um, was Poland a very uh, uh, photogenic city or, or was it a little more? Because uh, when I think of the U.K. especially, it's like gray. Like I can't imagine a lot of street photography in the U.K. <laughs> there, You know, when the sun is right, it's actually pretty stunning. And uh, and part of the pandemic uh pandemic sort of exercise was to do a lot of stills or or sort of you know we we, we all got locked down for months so um so i did sort of like a little 
um, personal project. It's nothing, you know, took the camera and sort of go to the parks. Uh, and with dappled light and, uh, and, and the right lenses, there are some interesting things coming out. Um, the light can be incredible, especially during the summertime and, and some months of the winter when the, when the sun is low, it's actually pretty special. It's very different. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of what, what interests you. I think there is a lot of gray sky as, as we have <laughs> today. Um, but, um, but there, there can be, there can be some interesting sort of shapes around and there are, you know, amazing photographers. Um, coming out from the UK. Yeah. Well, it, it is that kind of interesting thing where like when you have variation, it's when, you know, beauty can kind of come out. Whereas I've heard, especially in like early filmmaking, there's just like this, it, the people from the UK would describe like LA films. They all just look exactly the same because the sun's always in the exact same spot and everything's got the exact same shadows. And it's like, <laughs> but LA has beautiful patterns as well <clears throat> around the sunset. You know, I was fascinated oh, yeah. by the, uh, you know, the, because uh, you've got a lot of light buildings and then a lot of dappled light around. So, so there, there are definitely places which are interesting and it's so different. I think, you know, when it, once it becomes familiar, it's harder to take photographs. So when you go somewhere, um, the curiosity, the sort of the, the, the wandering eye, the, the unfamiliarity is just, um, it just brings more curiosity. And actually I noticed when I went to New York, I took more photographs the first time round than when I went the second time round. You know, your your eye is more curious. Yeah, I actually um this is a question I was gonna ask way later, but um we're here. Uh do you think of your photographic eye as being different than your cinematography compositions or anything like that? Cause cause I've tried to you know, on the on the little like Fujifilm X100, you can set like a 16 by nine frame. And I and I've thought like, oh, I should try to get more cinematic compositions in my photography. But I always find that. That feels much more difficult, and I don't see those types of compositions in the photo books I have necessarily. No, I, I agree. There's something different, um, I think, partially because you do have different formats. And actually, I find that. Um, uh, cinema can be a little bit more for formulaic than photography, I think, yes. um, because you've got the coverage. Um, the, I, I, when I was graduating from the NFTS, from the film school, um, part of my thesis was um, that I took 16mm camera to China and I did a documentary. Uh, well, sort of, it wasn't a documentary, it was sort of like a, a, a mood thing on 16mm um, uh, about jade diggers. Uh, and, um, and to sort of get to know the place, I took a lot of stills and, uh, I was traveling a lot. The stills weren't actually that great, but it was sort of a lot of, um, reversal. Uh, it was actually a very dramatic story because those stills meant to be part of my thesis. And, uh, and I lost, I don't know, like something like 30 rolls of film. I left it in China. Oh no. And, uh, we discovered at the uh, airport and uh, uh, my traveling partner um, was very, very stressed because I totally freaked out. Uh, it was like three weeks worth of work and uh, and my graduation and so on. And and we, we, we got them sent back to London, you know, some, oh, some, wow. some, 
some friendly soul after a, a, a long, long, long hours of calling from the airport saying, giving the address, we actually had it sent back to the UK, uh, which was incredible. And it happened to me once before. Actually, the first time when I took um, a lot of rolls of film, we went for this death metal concert in uh, in uh, Bergen near Lauverden. It was in Holland. And I think I lost about six or seven rolls of film um, and I found them back. Uh, we were scouting the uh, the field after the concert at night with torches and we found them like after two hours. Um, That's amazing. So I, twice I lost like, you know, my whole body of work. I mean, it's all very personal. Like th there's no, um, there's nothing really... Um, to be published is just sort of a way of training my eye and, and training uh, my taste. But going back to your question, uh, I took a lot of stills. And then in the moment when I started taking uh, moving images, I couldn't go back to stills because my mm. mind sort of switched. And I was quite surprised by it. Uh, my mind sort of switched in a different way of storytelling and different way of observing. But I think it's specific to me. I don't know. I'm sure that there's um, that you can uh, combine it. But I don't take many stills when I work. Yeah, I, I personally, I've found that like, you know, behind the scenes stuff can be fun. You know, photos of your friends working or whatever. But yeah, when I guess I guess you know, it it's kind of said in the medium but like photography is telling a story in one image and cinematography is telling a story in many images you know the context usually there's more context in a single photographic image than there is in a single uh frame of film not all of them but sometimes oftentimes well i think it's also you know you, you you're trying to tell the whole storytelling in one image where i was i i, I had to uh film a cricket game the other day and uh and and the idea was that you capture it in one image to establish something um and i couldn't do it cricket i couldn't do it because it's just one big wide shot, shot. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> and then you probably could go, go on a long lens and, and and show some action but that's like then you've seen it so many times because it's a it's a sort of a, a sports shot so how to do it in a way that you haven't seen it and i i really haven't figured it out um cricket is a tough one yeah that's a massive field too and you just they, they just like surround they, they make <laughs> a circle to make it even wider so you you really are nowhere near the action at all but i keep yeah. failing you know i lived in the uk for like 24 years and i keep failing in one of the sort of national sports understanding cricket to be fair no one watches baseball here so <laughs> you know same same um, actually I want to uh, do a uh, complete sidebar. Do you still, uh, are you still a metal fan? No, <laughs> uh, no. I'm going to, uh, a, 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 a Mastodon is opening for ghost for the four people who know who that is. Uh, and I'm going to the show at the end of the month and I'm very excited, but no one, no one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of parted it at age of 19. Um, I had a massive crash on Sepultura. From yeah, from, from Brazil. Brazil. <laughs> I was following them everywhere uh, in Poland. I think my sort of uh, the last gig I've done. Uh, it actually wasn't the last gig, but one of the sort of most memorable gigs that was Monsters of Rock. You know, I'm that old, and uh, that 
that was, I think, 1990 or 1992, I don't remember. Uh, we were really young. And uh, that was that was something really quite special. I'm very glad that I didn't realize how special it was until I saw pictures of my friend um, uh, focus pulling in Moscow on the same tour and the amount of people. And then I met somebody else who was um, actually a new uh, a, 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 an operator who um, who was in New York who came in for a couple of days for us on the show I've done. And uh, and he showed me some photographs he took from that uh, from from that uh, tour. That was pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's just such a such a different time. Yeah, there's a, actually a uh, now we're gonna go further off the rails. There, there's a fascinating podcast called uh, Winds of Change. I think it is the uh, about the scorpions going to yeah. Russia uh, uh-huh. the, at the yeah. um, when the USSR fell and. Uh, fascinating how like the the russians were like kept from you know american anything but especially rock music and then just how like not violently in the truest sense but just how aggressively they they came to it when they were finally given a concert same thing with like metallica and all that um fun stuff uh <laughs> anyway you know there's there, uh I'll, I'll ask a secondary question because uh especially now that a lot of um movies and television are primarily going to streaming, although we are seeing a, a mild resurgence in, in or a push to um, seeing movies in the theaters. Are you uh, do you think of going to a theater in the same in the same way that you think of uh, going to see live music? Is there like a similarity there in your mind or are they different experiences? I suppose they sort of um, yes and no. I think um for some reason, music is just more sort of immediate. I think uh, I went to see Baba Mal. That was my last concert. So yeah, I went to the West West uh, African music <laughs> from Death Metal. Oh yeah, uh, random. Um, but uh, and that was uh, um, I think the sort of the, the the drums and the sound and the you know it was it's such a great gig. Um, uh, sort of felt um, very immediate. I think films stay with me a little bit longer. I think they, you know, it can have a, the same emotional impact. Um, but I, I feel like it's like such a different medium. I think on the emotional level for sure. Uh, but then you can actually get um, moved by, I, I finally caught up uh, on a movie called The Prayers for Stolen, which was a Mexican film. Um, and uh, and I just can't stop thinking about this film. You know, it just had such a such a beautiful impact on me. It was so wonderfully told. It's based on a book, I believe. Um, but um, but it had a it had a sort of a, a real after effect for a very long time. You know, the the um, maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. It definitely plays with your emotion and it feels like you're more in it for sure. Yeah, you know that brings up something that they mentioned in preserving the the vision, but <laughs> uh, it just mentioned in there. <laughs> I'm such a fucking loser. Um, the uh, uh, it mentioned in there that that uh, seven had a big impact on you. Was that uh, I am a you know giant Fincher fan. A lot of DPs we've had on here are now um, obviously Darius, insane cinematographer. 
Um, was it the look of that film that stuck with you more than the message or, or was it the, the writing? Is it, I, I'm not sure where is it written in the whole story. So I went to see oh. seven. I went <laughs> to see, see seven thinking it's a comedy. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it just says it's your first most memorable, deeply memorable cinematic experience. And you couldn't speak for an hour after seeing it. And it was traumatic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say the first cinematic experience probably was uh, watching the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, you know, as a kid, on. I think that was such a, uh, I, I just have such a vivid memory of it. Um, Seven was a different story. I, it just came out. Poland just changed the system. Um, trailers weren't sort of a thing. Um, so somebody said to me, do you want to go and see a movie? Uh, what is it? I don't know. I think it's a comedy. All right, let's go. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I went there and obviously it wasn't, uh, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's not a comedy. Um, and then I, I realized very quickly it wasn't a comedy, but I, you know, I think there is a sort of a very different, uh, uh, preparation you do when you know that you're going to see something traumatic where, when you see a comedy, you're pretty open. Um, yeah, I was shell shocked. I, I, I was, um, deeply traumatized. Um, <laughs> that think, title yeah. sequence alone probably was like, oh no. <laughs> you know what? I think it wasn't, it took me a little while. Because um, we we had such a naive way of looking at Western cinema at the time, you know, we just like there, there has been. And I'm not saying that Poland does not have a great cinema; it's just a totally different storytelling. Um, so watching Seven was just. I mean, I think it was different, regardless to anyone whoever has seen the movie, because it was so dark. And I don't think that there has been many films to that level of darkness in the print and darkness in the story. You yeah. know, it, it, it had, did you hear the story? Did you read about the story of how it actually have ever been made? Uh, I've, I've watched the like special features on it, but um, I also, you know, what sucks is I have that Darius Kanji book and uh, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> it's great actually. But, but the story I think is, and I, and, and, I don't know, cut it out if, if I'm saying lies, but my understanding is that the script was sent over to Fincher, but they sent the wrong script because no one wanted to make it because it was so dark. And by, they did a rewrite, whoever has done the rewrite, uh, and that script meant to go to Fincher to be made, but it was actually the earlier version. So Fincher read it and, uh, and then said, I love it, I want to make it. Um, but the studio said, well, well, no, no, it's not this version. We want to send you another version. It was like, no, no, but I really love this version. So I thought that that was, that, that was the story, but. I, I think you're right, actually. I think, I think I have heard that. Cause of course it's going to be the dark, the more fucked up version that he's like, oh yeah, let's make that. <laughs> um, but also visually that film is, Man, we're going to jump around on the on the question spectrum here, but because uh, I want to get to uh, uh, Russian Doll in a, in a little bit. But um, in the in that first episode that you're nominated for, congratulations. Um, uh, there is kind of a I mean, m the whole thing takes place at night, but there is I've noted like the black level and like in especially I guess some of the greens. It does have a little bit of uh, seveniness to it in some ways. That's uh, very uh, appealing to me. 
Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of films sort of looking at 70s film, sort of print, slower stock. So in in my wildest dream, you know, Russian Doll was relatively low budget, um, especially in New York, you know, shooting in, A, in coronavirus and uh, during the pandemic and also... Um, uh, I think permit-wise, I, I, I still don't quite understand, but I know that New York is just very strict. Unless um, you're Law & Order SVU, then you can shoot wherever you want. Probably. <laughs> um, so so the idea was that, you know, I wanted to have a slightly brighter sources, but I think we, we you know, we, we had to, um, we had to do what we could afford. Um, but, Definitely the the idea was that we will have, you know, whether T20 or actually we had T20 and the 24 uh, light next to each other to give a bit of spread and then a punch. That was the sort of way of looking at New York. So, so, so the idea is that everything will go into darkness and you kind of can light little, little ways. And then my, um, my lad was very contrasty as well. Um, and, uh, I it's my first collaboration with Greg Fisher from Company Free, but we we sort of been talking about working together for a while, and he has done a lot for me before. Um, so when we did the test, um, we really looked at the blacks and 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 how the 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 highlights reacted, and uh, and how we can bring the midtones down to sort of get that more grungy feel, and. It's so important to get that impact between um, the 2022 and 1980s. So, and Greg used to work uh, in the lab, so uh, so he's really knowledgeable. And uh, you know, I've, I, when I was assistant and uh, and at film school, we only really learned film. Uh, so 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 that was quite interesting. You know, I remember telling DPs the printer lights. Um, you know, when after after uh, in the morning when I called the lab because they couldn't talk. Um, so uh, so it was a different world. And uh, yeah, I mean, some sort of film emulation uh, was definitely uh, in our mind. Obviously, it's a digital world, so you can only do as much. Um, but I like my I like my blacks clean. I think that there's a tendency that I try to get them as clean as possible. Yes, that's uh, especially there, <clears throat> there's one very brief moment where uh, uh, the main character is walking down a staircase into the subway. And I noticed that you can see everything. It's very dark down there, but you can see everything and it's not muddled. And uh, but but the texture of, of the image is still very, um, I suppose, diffuse, even even in the sharper modern stuff, it still has a very uh filmic look to it, I suppose. And I hate like nowadays you can't use the word filmic or cinematic without a bunch of people on YouTube jumping out of the computer and strangling you. So, uh, I, uh, try not to, but it, it does have that look. And I, and there was a few questions I actually wanted to ask you about that. Um, one in the let development, what are you aiming for? Obviously you said clean blacks, but like, uh, color wise, for instance, the, um, neighborhood watch guys i noticed their red berets that is not a digital red that red is definitely like you know deepened um how would you say it in, in da vinci resolve terms it's been it's, it's been it's, heightened yeah um so I like mean, what other colors are you shifting around because because digital 
I mean, the Sony Venice is an amazing camera, but uh, what colors are you manipulating and how are you manipulating to get them away from digital and into more, let's say, film-like? I, I remember that um, um, the the reference for 1980s and the way how we built the lot was somehow a still from The Headless Woman. Uh, mm. It's uh, Lucretia Martel's uh, still, and I love that film so much. Um, I love the framing of it. I, th- I love I love Luc- Lucretia Martel. I mean, she's just incredible director. Um, and uh, and there is a moment where the character is in the cyan bathroom, and I don't know whether there is a red or maybe we just made up. But in my head, there is, but there might not. <laughs> So somehow that becomes sort of a reference for building the lot. So I think uh, I had some lights. So so it's just you know it's a bit of trial and error a little bit because I think when when I do camera test, I want to do as many days of camera tests as I can. And the producer says no, you have one day. And I said that's right. never enough. Uh, so you sort of try to steal as many as many days as you can do. Um, so, you know, whenever I went to, I went to Aria and I filmed something and then I did the camera test and I filmed something. And then we took, um, we did the hair and makeup test, uh, which obviously was very informative. So we looked at the different color temperatures and then I took that the camera out on the street as well, uh, which actually, I think that's what was the basis of building the 1980s light, uh, lot. Uh, because it was quite blue and cyan So we pushed the science for sure. Uh, and then um, the reds actually stayed from... So we had the 2022 look, which was a sort of a, a rough replication to what season one was, but uh, with our own interpretation of it. So we didn't want to do too, diff- too many different things, but we've changed the way how blacks reacted and highlights. Um, and mid-tones because sort of, you know, the lights only work to your style of lighting. Um, And from that point, we did a test on the tungsten fixture, which was uh, this and the exterior shot become uh, a basis for for all the 1980s. Uh, So we pushed the science, we sort of reds were the same, but maybe we made them a little bit deeper. Um, We made the stock slightly more contrasty and uh, and I think it just sat the midtones sat a little bit lower than uh, than the rest, more or less. I mean, it just meant to feel a bit more contrasty. I think that's the idea. It's the simulation of the of the film stock. Uh, so I had a couple of res- references. One was from Headless Woman. Then we had uh, Mean Street as well. Uh, there was, uh, there was a, a shot uh, on the street. So sort of the idea was that you know we have a cruder type of. Uh, light to then allow everything else to be darker because you know if you expose everything in new york and you do periods then you're going to see all sorts of problems but when you make it more contrasty the vfx is going to be better and actually you know it's 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 more in tune to what how films have been shot that time yeah the you know um that brings me so this is how terrible my notes are that none of this is connected this is all over so it. like i have to stare at it and i'm like what did i mean by that <laughs> um but one thing that uh 
you kind of touched on it is you so you say the but it doesn't feel like a low budget film at all though you could i suppose you could intuit that like you know this isn't a marvel production you you know I mean, the setups are relatively simple they're not like super exaggerated or anything um and i was wondering if you could kind of walk me through some of the uh maybe like for instance on the on the platform or in the subway just as one example or in the uh house that charlito copley's in um those lighting setups seem very simple and, and if you were to just take a camera and go shoot with overhead practicals it would not look cinematic so what are you doing to adjust those things and achieve a look that looks that good? You know, Emmy nominated good <laughs> versus just top light, you know, from um, from whatever fluorescence. So I actually, you know what, I, I spent long hours walking around New York streets and uh, did a lot of freaking out because um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I can't have a condor on every street, but if we expose characters, um, if we expose characters to um, to the ambient light, it's just not going to look right for any period. So uh, the system has become is that I had a uh, what a nine light, mainly nine light tungsten for uh, for backlight, and the, the 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 good thing, the saving grace of uh, of the shoot was that we only could see one side of the street because that's the side we could hide with the period cars because during the pandemic new york regulation is that you can only dress one side of the street the other one has to be um as untouched and accessible to the resident or at least we we can't do anything about that so it was always trying to find and build a little tower for the backlight so most of the streets have backlight. And I think that's that's like a one uh, really important factor. A, Natasha's hair looked fabulous when it's backlit. And B, also, <laughs> it was such a different look to the season one uh, of the modern time. And we really needed to continue having this philosophy of being in a period. Um, so backlight was the other, there's one thing. And then for... Uh, because most of the shots are sort of tracking shots. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I put, oh, me and my gaffer, uh, Jared Malentkin, um, put zap lights, uh, sometimes diffused, sometimes open face for sort of like an effect. So it's, they're, they're sort of- You're saying soft. zip lights? Zip lights. Yeah, okay, cool. I always call them zap lights. <laughs> well, for all I know, that's I one did. I don't know about. I was had to make sure- I think I said it's zap light to somebody else the other day. Zip light, indeed. Uh, yeah. You know, the soft boxes, because they're sort of soft and hard. So so uh, a lot of front lighting is, uh, the period stuff is 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 lit by that. And mm. then every now and then, we always put some color in it. Um, mainly, I think, 013 and maybe CTS. I don't remember. Uh, I think both. Uh Sometimes, you know, most of the time I think they were dimmed and then um, when they come to close, we just put a little diffusion. Um, but they were they were sort of, you know, they were just direct straight onto onto faces. So so you, you've got that sort of street light effect a little bit. Um, and because the light was so contrasty, which was the idea, and I wanted to shoot it on deeper stop, which not always worked. Um, uh, they uh, <laughs> that's my partner uh they uh um 
they sort of worked, you know, it, it created that contrast where everything else went more to the darkness. And it was tricky. It was very tricky because a lot of the time we sort of, when we got a street, we we couldn't really say, oh, this doesn't work. Um, there was one street when I did say, please, let's change the location because we, and that, that ended up being in Tompkins Square. Um, I just couldn't figure it out. I, 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 it's just, it, I wouldn't know how to light it. It was a 360 um, around Nadia and Nora. And I was like, I just have nowhere to hide the lights, you know, and 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 continue with that idea. Uh, so, uh, and it made more sense, actually. I think Natasha really loved that. And, and it did become uh, the culmination scene of the app one, but it created uh, Michelle, the location, a lot of problems because we had to find a flat or an exit uh, connecting to Tompkins Square. And there was a lot of hot zones there. So, I mean, the locations right. have done incredible job. Um, but it was, it was, it, it, it looked great. Like I was very happy with where, where we ended up shooting and it made sense. And, um, and I think Natasha loved it. It was just connecting. It's just the co connectivity because a lot of stuff with Russian dough is almost immediate. So right. one connects to another. And you want to have some sort of continuity of location rather than going from, I don't know, especially when you're in New York, you kind of know you go on the 23rd street and then you end up on the second. I mean, everyone would know. Uh, yeah, right, right. They do that in Westworld a lot, I've noticed. They're, when they're playing L.A., you're like, all right, that's Santa Monica and that's downtown. You didn't leave that exit. Liars. <laughs> yeah, and you know, as a Londoner, uh, it drives me insane when people, people do the same thing think in London, in London drama. I was like, of course it's not connecting. So yeah, and, I, and it was super important for Natasha to, to and I, I was like, I'm 100% behind you. I totally understand what you're saying. You know what's funny is uh, I just saw this stat that said there's more people in LA County than in like 30 or 40 states. Like, and so you think someone who's like making those, oh yeah, they get off on the street, no one's gonna know. It's like actually statistically more people will know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's funny yeah um, like yeah the uh actually and also to your to your point about natasha's hair is looking great in the uh backlight there's a few shots in that first episode where you just straight up shoot dead into the backlight <laughs> it's in the shot and, you're, and i was just i appreciated it i appreciated the brazenness that 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 wasn't that that was the desperation <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, they, I hopefully it, it doesn't look like a lamp. Yeah, it happened once and it gives me heebie-jeebies. Um, we had a bad day that day. It was a terrible day. You know, it, it was always a bad day. That was that day. Uh, <laughs> so by the time when we shot the scene, it was like, I just said to the steady cam operator, just do whatever you can. And he went, okay, we go lower. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, were you trying to avoid something in the background? Oh God. I mean, Devin had to avoid, especially with Steadicam, you know, it's like the streets of New York are not very wide when you go around the, the Lower East Side. So yeah, you have to, you have to avoid a lot of stuff. Well, uh, to be fair, it totally looks like it, it, it sells as a street light. I know it wasn't, but it, you know, DP brain. Busted. <laughs> yeah, but that's fine. It you want you got you got nominated for an Emmy. No one's <laughs> it's giving everyone permission to do the same thing. Um, 
Actually, my friend, uh, I, I, I interviewed on him on this. We went to college together. He, uh, he got nominated for an Emmy for outstanding social, uh, interest documentary or whatever that is. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping between the two of you, uh, I can get some of that rubbed off on me and maybe get a job. You, um, you talking about <laughs> No, it's called, uh, in the dark of the Valley. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, very good documentary. Uh, and weirdly enough, and again, it's just my friends from college, uh, most lit second most listened to podcast episode we've ever done by a huge margin and it's like three buddies from arizona state like <laughs> talking about the documentary two of them made you know it's, it's funny how things like that can happen um i wanted to actually uh well i'll, I'll stick in this realm for um the game not the fincher film but yeah. the uh television show you did uh which I tried to get on Blu-ray, but yeah, I have to buy it on Amazon as like a down as like a streamer, um, which I have not done yet. But I've it's seen that I've, deep. I was awake last night, um, and so uh, I was looking at some of the stills from it, and and the the shots you got inside, even those offices, those kind of like brutalist offices, are are very um, they're very pretty. And I was wondering if you had advice for turning. Make, making an office like I guess this is a larger question about like shooting, modifying practicals and and sort of um, massaging existing light into light that you want. And then secondarily, like. Would you say that your style kind of sits in trying to make everything seem single source? Or am I making that up in my head? No, I, I, I mean, I, I haven't thought of it, but probably. Um it has to feel like it's a part of the, mm, don't know. I'll get back to you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, we had an incredible designer on the show, uh, sadly dead, uh, Michael Howell, Cowles. Um, I, it was my first um, night exterior I shot, my first um, interior where I could modify it and add fixtures. Like I was so green, it was a long time ago. And Michael built sets with pivot windows, you know, pivot. Um, yeah, the, 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 the whole, the whole glass room, the, the glass rooms when they were going and talking about their, um, which I think you must have seen one of the stills. Um, they were all sort of on, on little swivels. I didn't, I didn't even know that you can do stuff like that. Right. To kill um, reflections. Yeah, and camera camera shadows people uh, to to some degree, um, but um, and it was really interesting because the gaffer didn't really uh, Andrew Taylor. We we sort of um, saw an eye to eye at the end, but I think he didn't like the idea of a top light, and I wanted to. It didn't quite work out this way, but I wanted to do as much as I could with already lit set. So Mm. Michael and I talked a lot about practicals. I drove him totally insane. Um, And I wanted to have wall lights uh, pretty much everywhere. And then in the Brutalist library, um, we had so many fixtures put up. Um, So, so, and we created patterns from it. So it looks good on camera um, and it looks good for lighting. So we had it, we have them diffused and it was such a, I don't know, like I, I, I look at this show and I sort of don't know how I knew stuff. And uh, and I 
fought for a lot of things, but um, I kind of couldn't really quite understand why. It was just sort of like a gut instinct and a lot of help from other people. Uh, but I knew that there is a certain elements like, you know, I knew that there has to be as many fixtures as I could. They have to be in the middle. They had to create one single light source. Otherwise, they're just not going to, you know, I, w- I want the, the walls to go to shadows as much as I could. So uh, and that location was so fabulous. I don't really know whether it exists anymore. It mm. was a, an old library, which... Um, they were moving out to the to the modern one and we just got uh permission it was just so last minute we had so many people working on it because by the time when the deal was made for us to film in there we i think we were almost shooting or we were like a week before so we did a lot of locations first and then somehow i've managed to convince brian cox to shoot nights with us uh, the the other DP Sam McCurdy was a little bit smarter, and he um, he blacked out the whole atrium. I didn't know that you could do it either. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but there was a couple of shots I remember um, because because the idea within the game is that anyone can spy on each other. Um, so we had those shots, sort of long zoom shots of uh, you know of all those. Um, uh um floors with people working on it and we sort of i think we were zooming out that was the beginning sequence the beginning sort of just pre the um pre or just pre the titles i think i don't remember um but it was i mean i'm superbly proud of it you know it's like things like um there has been um miners blackout and i didn't know how to do moonlight I just know I just knew that I really like Wendy Light because I've seen it. I ha- I have been lucky enough to be on film sets before as an assistant. And I've been lucky enough that on my last job as an assistant, I was uh making sure that Chris Mangus had all the lighting notes because he loved having his uh lighting setups done. So me and the best boy, uh oh the best boy was really writing all the, uh, everything down and I was sort of, you know, I was studying uh carefully driving chris crazy but i've actually realized that that was the best film school i have ever had because when it came around to working on the game and having lighting setups i knew how wendy likes look like and i knew that it's going to give me a spread and i knew that it's going to be okay um and i really don't like too pingy highlights um so i try to although that wasn't part of the Russian doll, like Russian doll, I wanted to have spread and, and pink. But um Natasha's but yeah. skin tone very pink. Pardon? Natasha's skin tone is like very uh uh white but also pink undertones. Yeah. She she did get pink especially for the 1944s. because uh, we we did a lot of um we did sort of like our version of two strip uh technicolor. <laughs> Mm. Anyway, but you know, it's like um, Wendy Light is just a, a, a 650 small bulbs in uh, 48. Uh, I think that's a half Wendy, uh, 48 uh, fixture uh, or 128. I think that's a full Wendy because it comes with four tiles. Um, and it's an incredible, incredible light. Yeah. 48, is- 92, something like that. 
I mean, you don't got to know. That's what the gaffer's job is. Um, <laughs> is there anything that you, uh, it, so- it sounds like you learned quite a bit in that project. Because one thing I did want to ask you was like, when you get a new script, um, how do you balance excitement about wanting to do it versus the fear of not knowing how to do it? <laughs> and what did you oh, learn from that panic. project? <laughs> you panic and then you learn on the job. I mean, I, I, I was... I was very scared. I mean, it's just, I think you look at, you look at things and you learn and you ask people questions. Um, I think I was really lucky enough to have a, um, I was never afraid to ask questions uh, if I didn't know something, because especially in a project that, um, that large. Um, And, um, and I, I think consecutively on every project, if I didn't know I had, always somebody who I who I can ask a question and sometimes asking question doesn't give you the answer you want or I wanted but it led me to the answer oh I don't want that which was great as well so asking questions sometimes is is just so helpful because it just manages at least in my case manages to sort of get my uh thoughts uh put together and then you know there's only a, a certain amount of solutions to to something um i don't know i think it's that and and sort of not quite uh uh not quite realizing how big a challenge it is <laughs> being yeah. quite naive which is great but i I'm, I'm super happy with with the game and 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 it sort of looks exactly how i wanted it so it was great that's awesome um you know i well actually talking about the chris mangies thing um I do have a note that says it's for dirty, pretty things. If anyone wants to watch, uh, when having all those notes about contrast ratios, I think this is something that beginner cinematographers don't quite grasp is how, uh, limited contrast ratios should be, I suppose. And I'm throwing should in huge air quotes, but, mm. um, you know, like a three to one ratio on a face is actually quite, Mm. contrast you know like half a stop a quarter of a stop um really does matter in a lot of cases uh i was wondering if you could kind of speak to maybe if you remember at that point when you realized like how kind of precise you had to be with lighting because these days especially with you know leds and those pigtail bulbs you buy on amazon and stuff people just plop them up and go it's lit and you're like well you can see it (laughs) i think nowadays i mean so so I think with film is different. So my first job, I did two jobs with Chris Mangus. The first job, I was a trainee that was Dirty Breathe Things. And the last job was Notes on a Scandal. And on that job during prep, I got into the film school and become unbearable because I was following him <laughs> everywhere. Uh, a little tape recorder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I really, I'm really sorry. Um, but um, but the, the, on Dirty Breathe Things, I was super green. Um, and um, because it was my first job really in the industry. Uh, but Chris asked me to do Polaroid stills and then um, uh, measure the highlight and the shadow on faces. So I was walking around with light meter and I, uh, I, I sort of looked at uh, Judy Dent. Uh, no, that was a different film. I did that to Judy Dench as well. But um, I was looking at the uh, highlight and shadows on, on, on faces and writing it down on a with a pen on his, on his Polaroid and then put it in, in his, um, 
in his script. And I don't know, like, I think if somebody allows you to do something like that, there is a lot of memory which you can retrieve later because I didn't really start lighting until like five, six years later. Uh, but I do remember, um, I do remember those lessons. Um, I don't know what I think about the contrast level now. I think a lot of things can change within how contrasty your lat is. Mm. Uh, but I do have a certain aesthetics to it, but also it depends on the show and it depends. TV drama is very fast paced. You know, um, we don't really have time too much to finesse lighting. You know, it, it a lot of the time you, 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 um, a lot of the time, you know, it's, it, you're slightly behind and things don't go exactly the way how we sort of want it. And I always think about scenes and stills. So sort of, you know, have a, have a one image, one setup, which sort of, you know, um, summarize the, summarize the story, su summarize that moment and then sort of take it from there. So always try to strive for a still, which I'm really happy. And a lot of the times is then coverage. Um, I think if you can have silhouette, it sort of really depends on the location as well. And um, I'm more, I'm very prepared. I'm, I try to be as prepared as I can. Um, uh, but uh, but things change on set as well. Actors change their blocking. You know, that's that's totally fine. Yeah. Was <clears throat> just that, that much contrast necessarily on Russian Doll. I think with you know Natasha also had a. She had a fringe and then hair next to the face. You know, it's it it does limit the way how your key light um yeah. be placed. Yeah, it is actually now that you mention it, there isn't really on people's faces, it isn't very contrasty at all. The the scene oh. is, but they are pretty uh even. And I think it was really not you know, it was very important for Natasha. So you know, you 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 get hired as a cinematographer on a project, but but and and you know there is a lot of flexibility to what we can do um but also there is a desire of the creators um of how the show should look like and i think we have to be respectful of it so there is a certain requirement requirement from natasha and i was like fine you know this is style of the show we can create contrast in a different way yeah actually uh that's a perfect segue I wanted to know uh, what it's like to work with uh, a director who's also the main character and how that differs from working with a director who's fully, you know, behind the camera. Well, the thing is that the Russian Doe was directed by Natasha and Alex. You know, they had fantastic Alex Bueno. Uh, they had a fantastic collaboration together. They had a lot of trust together. And, uh, and you know, I think it was tricky for Natasha at times because obviously it's a very different hat, but I was not only working with Natasha. We also had Alex and Alex was on, on set every day. They've been discussing um, choices together um, among themselves. And then we discussed them together with heads of department, myself, um, you know, uh, Diane and, you know, whoever was. Um, so, um, but I always had a director with me, you know, it's um, if not two of them, then there was one. And and when Natasha wasn't um, in front of the camera, then then, you know, she was she was close to us. So, yeah, it didn't make that much difference, to be honest. And also, Natasha, I think by the time we were we were filming, you know, things already haven't decided more, more or less, you know. Sure. 
Yeah, there's uh, I can't remember which actor it was, but I remember one. I think it was a guy saying that the best piece of advice he got was uh, if you're the director to make sure that you get one more take. Because like, I guess actors who are directors just want to get like they don't want to feel vain. So they're like, I'll do it in two, you know, and the, the guy was like, no, just like do it until you get it. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> Everyone's standing around making sure you do it good. I think there's definitely, but I think that's universally. I think the scene has to feel right. But, yeah. you know, people get caught up in the moment. What well, You know, sometimes it might not feel right and it is right. Sometimes it feels right and it isn't right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It wasn't my, my saving grace with with Rush and Doll was that um, I really wanted to do and be part of the storyboarding session. And mm. I don't know how it is in America, um, but. In Europe, you're always very involved within the camera lensing and and moodboard. So um, so it feels very collaborative. And I and I think um, we had about a month on and off, sort of in between of scouting, uh, where uh, Peter Beck, Natasha, and Alex and I, and myself sat for hours on Zoom, you know, getting deliveries or cooking and then breaking down a majority of of the script, you know, at least in its, in its main, um, in its main sequences. So that was, we were, we were sort of quite prepared from it. We, we had an idea of what, what we're going to do all of us. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think over here, it kind of depends on, uh, I think it, it can go either ways. I've heard plenty of stories. People like, yeah, I showed up on the day, but I think those are like commercials, not necessarily scripted stuff. I did go ahead. I think people people have a very different style of working, and I think that that there are people who who uh, prepare like their directors who prepare themselves, and they want to know like they set the shots where we're going to make a story. This is the minimum amount of shots, and then we discuss it on set. There's some people who say, "Oh, let's figure out how we're going to shoot it on the day when the actors come in." I think there's just there really isn't a uh, a set rules. Totally. Um, I was actually just reminded, uh, again, by my ridiculous notes, uh, there's a great amount of, especially at the beginning of that first episode, um, interplay between warm and cool light, um, you know, key lights, or, or I guess it kind of depends, but like keys seem to be kind of warm, feel a little cool. And I was wondering if uh, maybe you could walk walk us through uh, your methodology behind mixing color temperatures, because especially on digital, I feel like it can be harder gets muddier than film or, or do I have that backwards I feel like film shows color contrast a lot easier whereas with digital you kind of have to like goose it a little bit I didn't notice that I mean the, the thing what I like about I think well, there's the expert camera, <laughs> there's, there's certain camera sensors which do get muddier um but a lot of a lot of the time I think the, the rule for me at least the rule is the same if you have a healthy if you have a healthy negative and you don't underexpose too much, and that's the style, you know, I've seen people underexposing uh, Venice where they rated it 6, 64,000 just to have a very thin neck, and that's a part of the look, and it looks really beautiful. But if you want to have healthy contrast and heavy blacks, then you have to create contrast. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And right. then... Um, Within the color separation, I mean, I found, um, I suppose, both LF and Venice are very good, you know, Alexa LF. And then I'm testing Alexa 35 tomorrow when I'm filming. 
So I will let you know. I think they have a very healthy way of uh, color separation. Um, You know, the sensors are pretty amazing. So I didn't have that problem, really. Well, were you uh, sort of setting sort of just a regular tungsten daylight sources and then plopping the uh, setting the camera to like 4300 or or were was there a little more um, finesse there? So with Russian doll, we had four LUTs. Each LUT had a different different feel to it. Um, the most important uh, the most important part was to differentiate the LUTs in the around the circular train and the, the you know the train story because she obviously travels. There is a moment where she travels from twenty two to eighties and so on, mm. um, and um, so so we wanted to. Like with that in mind, we wanted to have make sure that there is different color temperatures. Um, I can shoot on anything color temperature wise. It could be six thousand five hundred to uh, to. I don't think I done two thousand seven hundred, but it, it, I, I'm I'm sure that it could happen, but unlikely. So you know, it could be tungsten. It could be it could be um, daylight. Um, color temperature. I think it's just sort of how it feels right, and I and I'm, I made notes of what sort of is predominant um, color feel, and then obviously we we chose the fixtures to complement it. So the 60s were warmer. Uh, the idea is that there is more tungsten light around it, so the light uh, ref- re- reflected that. And then 1944 was a little bit of the experiment. We didn't know what is going to work because uh, we had all these setups in Kaleti Station at night, and I just didn't know. Um, we knew that we wanted to have a... Uh, I think Attila, Attila Dochi was our gaffer in, um, in, in Budapest, and he, was, he didn't want to have any backlight, and I was like, we need to have backlight. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that's old. <laughs> and I think we had the HMI at the time. I think we put 9K... Um, which is very unusual for me and but it's the only source which could give us punch and where we can find the place so there was like a gun tree just above and we put it on a on a corner uh and it, it you know it, it it worked out really nicely but we didn't know whether that lot is going to work we created that lot without really having the proper lighting setup for it so that's obviously really scary because i haven't been working with the DIT, I mean, we had the DIT, we had a lovely DIT, but it was it was very quick sh- uh, shoot. So we really haven't had time to build any language together. Uh, and uh, but it worked. And and Greg, our colorist, would say, of course it worked. But uh, but I didn't know. <laughs> you know, there's uh, that is the one advantage to a lot of these modern, you know, your LFs, your Venices, your uh, Alexa 35s is um that sort of digital negative, so to speak, is so robust that you can move those colors around quite a bit. And uh, usually you can get away with it, you know, especially when you're shooting raw. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you, yeah, you, you, you're you not ba- baked into anything. And we did shoot raw on this. We had a lot of visual effects and, and I wanted to shoot as best quality as I could. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, boy. This is where we start cutting things. Oh, lenses. Uh, So you said that you, uh, in a separate interview, that you had shot uh, Baltars for the older stuff and and, um, 
uh, Leicas for the newer stuff, correct? Um, so we had, yeah, we had Boltars for 80s and 60s. And then when we went to Budapest, we got Super Boltars, which are 1960s lenses. Um, and then uh, uh, Leica C, Sumilux, Sumicron, Sumicron, Sumilux. I never remember which one is which. I can't, C. I never keep them. What's the difference? <laughs> Stop. I actually oh, did okay. check. Uh, one is one four and the other one is, I think T2 or T2 one, something like that. Gotcha. And were you shooting those Baltars wide open? No, no. Most of the time I tried to keep it at least to eight, uh, in ideal world, everything would be shot T4, but mm. I, you know, sometimes we just couldn't, um, yeah. I was going to say that because the, the texture of the Baltars really comes through in a lot, like even just like in simple shots, like in the bathroom where she's first learning that uh, it's the first episode, whatever. She's her mom. Um, and I was like, do I give this away? It's like eh, first episode. Come on. Uh, but that that texture is really is uh, very fun. And, and I think there is a difference between uh, and this is for the maybe the younger DPs out there. There's a difference between shooting something wide open and having a lens with texture because wide open can just look fuzzy with mm. no sensibility and texture. You can shoot it at a T4 or whatever and still get that cool uh, fudgy vignette thing going on or whatever the lens might do. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I think that bathroom was actually shot T that was wide open, which was fine. Uh, but the streets were two, eight, at least two, eight and a half, at least. So yeah. I just wanted to see more depth, depth, especially it was, it was all, the whole philosophy was all about, um, contrast and, and deeper stop. And then, you know, there was a leeway, creative leeway to other things. I mean, it's a modern Nadia in a, in an old body, you know? Yeah. I actually, uh, can you speak to any risks you took on this film? This is something that I've recently with, with guests on this show, um, started realizing that that I that doesn't get asked a lot because a lot of times when you get hired for these jobs, some people have said like you you don't take any risks. You, like you're hired to get this thing in the can and do it properly. Um, were there any times where you were kind of like pushing your limit a little bit and maybe like a little nervous about making a choice that you thought was uh, maybe good creatively? Maybe I think bit, they, uh, sketchy. <laughs> The uh, the the whole train sequence was was very nerve wracking, um, because we. I mean, when I'm saying going back to what I said, when I'm saying low budget, you know, obviously we we had a budget, but it, it was it was stretched, and building LED walls, you know, the 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 question, the question you ask yourself is like, is this conviction we had is like. Could it work on black or could it work um, with green? Um, you know, could we do anything cheaper and, and still look the same? And actually, now I'm looking at it, it, it leads to so many creative, wonderful shots. But the shot where Nadia goes from train to train, I mean, that wasn't from train to train. That was like a tiny little butt end of a train. And then she goes into our main train. So we just framed exactly uh, the the tiny, tiny little button of it. The guideline but, uh, just right up against the wall. <laughs> exactly. Or the cut. Yeah. Um, you know, that 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 shot was never planned and actually and actually looks rather fabulous. And it looks heightened and it looks 
you know, you know that you're in some sort of LED screen. I think your eye can 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 notice that, but it's so heightened, so elevated. It's actually it's like one of my more favorite shots. Um, so uh, and then all this sort of extra uh, reflections you have, you know, this these details who you probably wouldn't have um, put in post because there is only as much imagination we can have in creating sort of um, so that, you know, all the shots outside of the of the carriage. Um, I, I was sitting with an iPad by the by the monitor and just looping stuff, which I thought was interesting for emotional beat. You know, so so it's already baked in within the shots, and and it was great because there are like little moments where there was it just it just felt right. So it's like, oh, it's, now is the train, or now we're gonna do the light effect, or you know, it's it's um, we had more control to sort of emote things with lighting. And yeah, you reflect. can uh, you can like art design your light a little bit more. Mm. Um. Yeah, because like even some of the I remember like the f- sort of effect when she's going back to the 80s is it's kind of like 2001. You know, it's a little a uh, little bit of this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. We're all big fan of it. Actually, I went to see uh, in the South Bank again. Um, I went to see 2001 with uh, London Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow. And it was absolutely I mean, this it was from a cinematic viewpoint, you know, you've got uh, when the orchestra is playing, they, there's uh, a lot of spill of light uh, onto the screen. But um, but the actual, um, that's almost going, the, almost the full loop to our first question. The, 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 the musical experience of it uh, yeah. was just so fabulous. You know, like when you, when you listen to something live, music-wise, it just heightens your perception of the movie it was just truly extraordinary and the yeah. whole sequence with the slit screen you know um you when he's traveling uh i i just i just got good goosebumps all the way through it was just the best thing ever the the vocals on that that uh, arrangement specifically are fucking haunting like i sometimes that just pops up in my head and i'm like that ah, get out of there like <laughs> So there was a live choir on both ends. So we had the orchestra in the in the middle, and then the the uh, male and female choirs uh, sort of you know singing against each other because it's like a it's like a duel. Yeah. Oh, that must have been so cool. It really was. That's you know that's the true. People say film versus digital. No, there's live versus recorded. That's the real. <laughs> that's the real difference. I guess that is what we were saying at the beginning. Uh, actually going back to the beginning, uh, you know, one of my favorite moments on this podcast I've ever had, and I know I got to let you go soon is a little later than I expected, but, uh, one of my favorite moments on this podcast is I was talking to Tim Ives about photography and, oh, yeah. uh, and he was like, Oh, uh, do you want to see some photo books? And I was like, yeah. And then he spent like 25 minutes walking me through his favorite photo books is the best moment ever. And I had read somewhere that you, you, uh, have a large collection of photo books. I don't know if it's a large, it's never enough. Yeah, um, well, that's that's more what I meant. You obsessively collect them when you can. <laughs> yeah, I just ordered another one. I'm I'm really into, uh, um, at the moment, uh, actually, I'm really into uh, this Australian. Uh, it's it's actually, it's uh, Trent Park, but it's him and his wife. 
also his his wife photographs are um are, are incredible um i've ordered uh another another uh audition of uh that and he's just so fabulous this this one is his like his one before the latest one crimson crimson line and uh but i i love his he he actually was really interesting because i think um his first photographs was sort of he he was walking around with Ilford 3200 um ISO and tried to photograph one of the iconic um photographs i remember is the sort of like heavily overexposed but sort of um long exposure with this sort of huge highlights it's a, it, it's one of the buildings in australia uh i don't know is it sydney or melbourne um very grainy and with just those sort of highly overexposed uh moments one one is like a overexposed uh person they're all extremely haunting but very familiar it just has mm. this incredible eye of um of making something uh ordinary um extremely heightened yeah are there uh is there a photo book that's kind of like your white whale like the the one that you uh your holy grail that you're trying to get a hold of because photo books can get very expensive or they only printed like 10 of them. I, I really wanted to get the, um, uh, the chromes, which I did in the end, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the William Eggleston. It took me a long time to get it without like paying totally ridiculous amount of money. Right. Uh, I really love anything by, uh, Rinko Kaochi. She's a photographer. She's a Japanese photographer. Um, she's just so, I, I, I came across her exhibition in photographer's gallery. Um, and I just stumbled upon it. I never heard of her and it was the photographs of her family. And there was so much storytelling in there. Um, she's really, truly wonderful. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's like a lot of, oh, I really like, um, uh, uh, Henry Guyer, uh, mm. He he did one of my favorite books is the uh, TV shots, uh, and it's signed by him. Um, oh wow! I've never heard of that. Uh, hold on, I need to open this. One second. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's Annie. Yeah. I'm um, trying to find that book, but I can't at this moment. It's somewhere. Books. And you know, I love Soul Lighter and. Um, yeah, I can't get any of those books. They're all too expensive. <laughs> oh really? I've got Diane Arbus, um, Vivian Mayer. You know. I'll show you. A, I'll show you two. This one is very fun. Hollywood and Kodachrome. Oh yeah, it's that's just, yeah. I just love like all these. It's just, it's very interesting to see all these like old uh, old lighting setups and stuff. Like getting photos of um, uh, Lucille Ball in color is just a very strange experience to me, especially when she's done up all you know very pretty and. So now you like cost that. me money. That's great. No, you. this one's actually uh, in print, so you can get this one, Rita Hayworth and stuff, but. Uh, no, no, but now get, I have to buy it. 
it's it's very cool. It's a nice old thick guy too. Um, but I well, Hollywood didn't cut a crumb. Hold on, I need to write it down because there's no way. Yeah, uh, I truly think it's like thirty or forty dollars. Like it wasn't that expensive. I got it on Amazon. Where was? Does this say right? That? Okay, in. I can't find the price on this thing for the life of me. That's all right. Um, but I'll, before I let you go and ask you the last two questions, I will brag. I have the Roger oh yes, Deacons I got book, it too. But is it signed? Oh, very nice. The most likes I've ever gotten on Instagram. <laughs> Photo of me standing next to Roger Deacons and his wife. Um, <laughs> she was funny. She was like, you can tell he didn't. I mean, he, I'm sure he wanted to be there, but you could tell she was like, say hello, and go. <laughs> pushing him around <laughs> you go james james is clearly the uh the energy behind that uh movement anyway um i like to end every podcast with the same two questions um kind of works for tv shows but not quite first one being um if you were to program uh season two of russian doll in a double feature so to speak what would the other film or television series be So like it only really works for movies, so you kind of have to do a no, bit no, of a mental like, exercise. Okay. Uh, so so you're programming at like a festival, and Russian Doll season two is going to be in a double feature. What do you make the other film or or series that people see? Not mine. Yeah, well, I mean it can be, but it can be whatever you want. Uh, Russian Doll in seven. There you go. We can take that. That'll be a good one. <laughs> you know, I was interviewing um, uh, uh, Jeff Cronenwith at, for uh, the um, I Love Lucy film he did, whatever, uh, what's, Being the Ricardos. And I was like, what would you do for a double feature? And he goes, oh, Alien versus Predator. <laughs> good one, dude. I, I, I really actually another experience I had and I'm, I'm a massive fan is Alien. You know, the uh, the first Alien. One of and the best look the on Blu-ray. One. Incredible. So I went to see it in the uh, 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 in the uh, um, the Albert Hall the, um, and uh, with the live orchestra as well. And that on, was amazing. Uh, projected on 35? I don't know, actually, because oh, it's okay. like it's almost like the picture is secondary. I have seen it in the cinema. Um, but you know the, the the film which I was extremely lucky to see, um, uh, which uh, in the in the cinema uh, fairly recently, um, is an Altman movie, uh, which Robert uh, which Oliver Stapleton um, uh, has shot. And is it Kansas City? Hold on, let me just check. Uh, I always remember is the one with the jazz and and. Um, yeah, Kansas City. Uh, and that was, um, the print was the original print intended um, uh, with the uh, with the uh, silver highlights. So it was the bleach bypass. Wow. Well, not bleach bypass. Um, ENR? No. Yeah, bleach bypass. So we've got this yeah. sort of silver highlight. Um, yeah, yeah. Amazing blacks. And uh, on the print... I don't think I've ever seen a projection of because uh, I live relatively close to um, Quentin Tarantino's theater. You know, they only show 35. 
Oh, um, amazing. Yeah. But so like I got to see the Matrix in there. That was cool. Uh, like an original print of the Matrix, original print of Fight Club and stuff. Oh, like no, Fight Club. There we go. That was ENR. That was that was tons of bleach bypass. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely like that's a weird that's like the uh the OLED of film, you know. <laughs> it just goes black. It was so incredible. I mean, I, I love that film, but I love the cinematography of it. I thought it was, you know, Oliver's one one of the best work I've seen. And just just fabulous sequences of the musicians where uh, you know musical numbers. I, I I actually really love films with with big music. I think you know, um, yeah, that was that was pretty awesome actually. Um, There's definitely a running streak. That goes back to your to your question. I don't know. I can't differentiate that the music and the uh, cinema is all the same, right? That's my answer. <laughs> I, well, so that's kind of my. I agree. I try not to. I have a problem where I will ask a question, but I. I'm not trying to get an answer, but in the question, I will say what I think and I have to stop doing that. But I also agree. It's I think it's all the same when you're with people. Obviously, live music is going to definitely affect because the like the dynamic range of the sounds that are coming to you and the, and the mixing. You know, anytime you see a recording of something or listen to a recording of something, it's compressed into whatever that format allows. Whereas when you hear something live, it's completely expressive in all of its glory. Um, but we respond to music, I think, more than visuals. We definitely invented music before we invented film. <laughs> you know, we can't. That's we came good. out the shoot and started beating on rocks or whatever. You know, uh, percussion, especially. I, I'm. I want to start uh, interviewing musicians for this podcast because I started as a musician. As a oh, drummer, really? and so oh great, I, as a drummer, and then I, I kind of got into guitar a little bit. I can sort of play guitar, but uh, I've always been musically minded. And I'm always trying to draw, draw parallels between music and, and cinematography, um, and uh, I have yet to be able to articulate that. So I want to find some musicians who really love film because I know there's a ton, um, and and kind of have that weird little conversation there in the Venn diagram that is those two brains, you know. You see, I want to listen to it because I had a big discussion with my uh, musician friend and she thought that the music is different to cinematography. Um, and I said it isn't, but I couldn't really quite articulate why. Uh, and it is different. So I don't know um, if you find that if you find people who will answer that dilemma, I'm going to send her <laughs> that yes. podcast. I need it. <laughs> Yeah. The, all right. Perfect. I'll, all right. So I'm going to, I was about to ask the second last question and I swear to God, we'll let you go. Uh, but now I'm going to tack in this third one. Um, oh no, it's gone. Oh, uh, did you, did, uh, did you spend a lot of time watching, um, uh, DVD special features? No, I don't think so. Although I did like the Criterion, uh, you know, during lockdown, we just watched a lot of old films. And then I remember the um, uh, the M, was it the, the uh, Fritz Lang's movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the um, that was the, the making of all sort of, I think they, they do like a, a small documentary uh, afterwards. And it was his first sound uh movie he's made and the, the sequences where it's silent 
which is quite extraordinary. So he he goes into the the the, the whole the sound design, and then there are moments where characters and white spaces and there's nothing and he he uses it he in such a clever way that it's just extremely um uh successful without yeah. knowing it was like super instinctive and that there was a documentary on criterion on it um so and it's the same with the foreign correspondent and and uh and hitchcock that was a pretty amazing one sorry oh no i was gonna say my my pandemic project was collecting criterion blu-rays and just banging through the special features the reason i ask is because i was a special features kid in the 90s especially and uh, early 2000s and uh, i want to create a a, a streaming platform just for those Mm. because because i bet the rights to the dvd special features aren't very expensive (laughs) but so far a lot of the dps i've talked to have said that's a good idea so now i just gotta like put it in the ether like someone with money come find me and i i will figure this out (laughs) it's a good Um, idea and especially if it's the right one, you know, if it's informative, I think a lot of the times it's sort of more publicity led. Um, Nowadays, yeah, especially it's very learn. frustrating. Mm. That back in like the the early the the 90s to early 2000, like there was about a decade and a half where DVD special features were all super educational and they weren't PR companies, you know, making. Oh, it was so great to work with this actor. It was like, I remember I mentioned this before uh, on a different podcast, but uh, there's one I remember where they like someone was filming the director, like having an argument with the, oh, I mean, there's a a famous video of David Lynch blowing up on a producer about not having enough time, but um, stuff like that's informative in many different ways. (laughs) Um, Okay. Final question. Then you can go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you'll need to come back and then and then we can just do you know have a whole have a whole uh, evening um is there a piece of advice or something you've read or maybe uh a lesson that you've learned that has stuck with you over the years that keeps coming back i think it's just sort of maintaining the level of curiosity and 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 making sure that um questioning if it's familiar what it's always right. I don't know, is it, uh, I think it's being curious. I think that's, that's really the, the, um, that, that sort of level and the curiosity can be about anything, but I think it's, it's, if you have it and you have a passion for a project, uh, you know, you, 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 there's always a a nice unexpected, uh, element. And the, the other thing is I, I, you know, take us, take stills. I think that's a great way of, um, I, I sometimes interview students for the film school, help out uh, during the selection process, not the final. And uh, and it's really exciting to look at people's like Instagram nowadays just give such a amazing insights to the taste, to the wandering eye. Um, mm. And I think that that, you know, that could be for everyone. You know, it's uh, anyone in the visual medium can express their their interest through stills they don't need to be cinematic um but they uh they're they they really do exercise your um your point of view i think yeah your storytelling brain as it were or curiosity of what interests you yeah 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 uh that's fantastic advice i i i personally uh, i will co-sign it i (laughs) that's something i always have to remind myself to do it's like don't get you uh, do you have your own instagram do you have stills I do. You know, I have to get better. At first I was 
because I started that <laughs> long story short, I, I used to work for Red Bull. And when Instagram first came out, Red Bull basically bought in wholesale. They knew like this is going to be the new thing. So they had all of the employees create an Instagram. And but at first it was just like advertising and trying to show, oh, we have live cool lifestyles. But I did not live a cool lifestyle. I was a nerd. So it was a lot of nerdy, dumb shit at first. And then uh, now, you know, whatever, it's fucking like 12 years later. Um, I'm trying to be a little more. Uh, I'm trying to curate it a little bit more and show good photography and stuff. Not just like for about two years there, I was just showing funny license plates that I found. Okay. You know. But that's fun. And what, Hashtag what, Kenny's back of cars. <laughs> so what made you being interested in cinema? What was your first cinematic experience? You know, uh, it, I remember being a kid of the nineties, obviously it was like star Wars, um, you know, was huge. Um, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory was very big for me for some reason. Just that, like the fantasy. I lived in a very, very small town, and the closest movie theater was 30 minutes away. And we would make that pilgrimage as much as possible because there was just nothing to do. Um, so anything that was escapism was very important to me because I didn't like being in my house. I didn't like staring at, you know, vineyards. And so I what sucks is that meant that I... It's, I wouldn't say it sucks, but like that man, I was, you know, men in black was really cool. The matrix, uh, anything that was just not, not pure escapism in the sense of, um, you know, fr- frivolous fun, but just anything that wasn't reality, which meant that I took a very long time to start watching, um, films that were more edifying, you know, basically anything that was in the criterion collection, <laughs> Uh, you know, it stuff like the Godfather, not interesting. It's too real. You know, I wanted space. I wanted, oh, yeah. you know, uh, anything that was, that was out there and then Jackass, but Jackass was very, very real. <laughs> that was very um, real. That was a bit too real. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was but, fantasy, but I completely understand. I mean, Matrix, when they came out, that was, that was amazing. That blew that, my mind. That was, uh, definitely the, the first film. I remember watching and it and it just combined, you know, like metal music, this dark look that I had started to discover I liked, like cyberpunkiness, which I was, again, giant nerd building my own computers at like nine um, kung fu. It was just all the things that a teenage boy needed, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, luckily it, it, it transcended that. There's plenty of films that now I say I like and people are like, don't don't tell people that. Uh, <laughs> You know, you grew up, you can say you liked clerks, but then when you say you liked mall rats, people are like, well, how about dogma? You're like, okay. (laughs) Very funny. Um, Yeah. So that's a little something about me Uh, for the listeners. I won't cut it out. I won't cut out stuff, but I try, I try to talk less about me because no one fucking cares. I haven't done anything. (laughs) You know, it's you guys that are far more interesting. Um, But uh, again, I, I would love to have you back on when you have some uh, more time to just shoot the shit because I think we could probably go for quite some time. But I will let you go. Thank you so much uh, for spending the hour and some change with me. Um, and congrats on the Emmy nom. That's I'm I'm I won't I don't want to say confident, but I'm no 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 that's excited like, yeah. to <laughs> I'm excited to see what happens. You know. Um, you know what? It has been real. I I'm I'm. Always very, very rubbish at it. Um, it's been so much fun. Thank you for making me feel comfortable. Um, I, 
great start with death metal. I think that was <laughs> the in <laughs> the right in. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks again. And I, I had a great time too. I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, it was fun for you as well. It was. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>